What is up, world, and welcome to the What You Got podcast, where we talk topics A to Z and everything in between. I am Jordan Palmer, joined as always by Charlie Budd, and today, here it is, part two of our Dune special, but this was kind of what we were really building up for while we read the book. It was all about Dune the movie, Denis Villeneuve's latest and some might say greatest uh, movie installment, so... uh, so many things to go over. The world is still, and by the world I mean the United States, is still just reeling over it, getting a feel for this new space opera epic. But we saw this together in person in the lovely city of New York. We did. What you got? What you got? Oh, Palmer. Well, this is something I've been wanting to see for over a year, you know, ever since mm. it was like announced and then it was supposed to come out December of like 2020 and it was delayed an entire year. Because COVID, which is fine, but we finally see it now. We're finally seeing it, and I have to say, you know, it was I loved it. It was excellent. It was such a good movie. Um, it did. It treated the book really well. I mean, definitely had like some minor changes, sped some things up, yep. and we can talk all about that. Um, but overall, thoroughly enjoyed it. I loved everything from like the visuals to the score to just the entire scale of everything from like. Uh, the city of Arakeen, Kaladin, mm-hmm. like even the shots of Gaty Prime, um, the Imperial yeah. planet where the Sadakar are. It's just like yeah, it was just it, yeah, like Secula Secundus or something. Um, it, it was just the scale was in, insane. The set pieces were amazing. Like I just love that like super modern architecture that really kind of like shows not like a highly advanced technological world because they kind of outlawed uh ai and computers but it still had that really like sleek modern style technology was clearly evident like human like it really had a lot of that visual storytelling going on in the movie um so with that said you know i just want to say spoiler warnings for all of you out there uh you're a mind reader (laughs) uh that we're going to be talking uh well tried not to talk too much if at all about the second half of dune because if you don't know dune the Mm -hmm. movie was only the first half of the book so we'll try to confine everything into the first half of the novel which was would be the movie or basically everything in the novel that's in the movie you you get my point and um we'll try to talk about you know differences from the books uh things that we liked themes that they kind of went for and all that stuff so there's your warning you know go see the movie you should really see it in imax like we did and it was an absolute oh, spectacle yeah. do not watch on hbo max you can watch it on hbo max for a second viewing if you want if you liked it that much but highly encourage to see it in theater so palmer gonna throw back back to you thoughts here on doing the movie well bud I had finished the book not too long ago literally i think it was two or three days before the movie but i'd had enough time to Buy into the hype. I'd seen a number of the trailers. I tried to stop midway through so I yeah. didn't see too much. But, dude, just given what Denis Villeneuve's done, mm-hmm. coupled with the cast, especially after you told me who was in it after yeah. uh, our last episode, mm-hmm. I was super pumped. And so, like you said, I was curious to see, A, the scale, but B, I wanted to see the mix of something that's so prominent in the book as the philosophy. Yes. And I was curious to see if that would be translated into the movie, mm-hmm. and if so, how, as well as the pacing, too, because I knew this was going to be 
a two-part movie yeah. or two films mm-hmm. to, uh, for the one story. And I wanted to see where they stopped it, but also what scenes they thought were important enough to keep in and what characters mm-hmm. would make the first half and then who yeah. wouldn't make the second half. And Dune is not all... And like his other thing with pacing is like Dune is also not a very fast-paced book. It, it, mm-hmm. It's a kind of a slow burn, you know? It Like it, it has a lot of... Because, you know, it's a lot to introduce you to and without like... And it's just it takes a bit for it to really build and we can definitely talk more about this later on when we kind of dive more into the details of the movie. But, um, you know, the first half is really kind of just setting up for the second half. Um, so <laughs> accurate. Um, so that's definitely like a, that's a challenge. And it was really interesting to see how they kind of tackled that pacing with an already notoriously slow paced book. Yep. But overall, dude, my thoughts, I, I really enjoy, I mean, there was a moment where I was just sitting in the theater. I was like, this this is beautiful. This is like, this man is a genius who put it together. Just everything was working. And once again, when we started watching it through on the second time, for the, we, we told ourselves, everyone, that we were going to watch it for five minutes. And we looked up and like an hour and a half was gone. So <laughs> if that doesn't tell you how good the film is, yeah. then I don't know what will. So just buckle up for that. Mm-hmm. But dude, great flick. Great flick. I'm so excited for part two, too. I, I know. I, I Right now, it's not greenlit, but like it has to be. I, I feel like it's, every, it's greenlit oh. in everything but name. Like Warner Brothers, you, you got to give it the, the, the green light. Especially since, like without spoiling anything in part two, is like that's when like everything goes down like mm-hmm. like the, you can tell for if you didn't read the book and you just watch the movie and you're listening right now like you can probably you might be thinking you know that that was a good movie but it just kind of it, it was clearly just built building up like it ended weirdly <laughs> right like it just kind of ended in the middle like it literally just ended in the middle of a story it did and it did. That, it's fair I, I can understand that i'm really curious for people who have not read the book to kind of see how they felt about it i saw like one youtuber talk about it he really liked the movie but i think one of the criticisms that he had was that like you know if there is no part two it just kind of felt like if this movie would kind of feel like wasteful in the sense but and i agree mm-hmm. in that sense but like at the same time i also remember turning to you jordan at the end of the movie i'm like wow like all the good stuff happens in part two like such a shame <laughs> that people like don't who don't know that won't know that like, I think that was literally the first thing you, you said. Yeah. To me. I was like, can't wait oh, for part man. two because that's when that's when it gets really juicy in terms of like all the good content that like Dune is kind of famous for. Definitely. And actually, if you are listening and you did not read the book but you saw the movie and you want to share your thoughts, please do that with us on Instagram at What You Got Podcast, what you spell W H A T C H A. Or on Twitter at what you got cast, what you spelled the same way. Yeah, but no, okay, bud. Kicking it off from the very beginning. Okay. The first person to actually speak was Zendaya as Chani, mm-hmm. and she was describing Arrakis. Do you think she was the right person to open up the film? I think so because it's clear that that's the theme that they're going for. Like her monologue mm-hmm. has really got that. Um, like kind of like a, the imperialist like theme that Dune has, um, and I think that's like the definitely the theme that they're trying to focus on a lot here, is because mm-hmm. uh, in the book, like, yeah, I mean, it, it it's clear if you're if you you know if you pay attention to reading the novel, it's clear that like you know maybe Paul and House Atreides 
and like even House Arconan especially are not necessarily like good. Even like House Artreides might have good intentions and they might seem noble, but at the same time they like Paul and what they do is not necessarily like they're not really heroes in this uh, mm-hmm. in this um, story. And so I think Chani's which monologue, which doesn't happen in the books, um, it, it it's a good kind of uh, like base to launch the movie off of because it provides you with enough information about kind of the politics of the universe and like what what her monologue is like three four minutes if that, um, and it really gives you kind of an idea of the themes that this. Uh, movie will take on but what did you think about that opening shot honestly it reminded me a lot of kind of avatar the last airbender vibes where guitar is just laying yeah. out everything that's happened mm-hmm. and it's so interesting because if you juxtapose um ang with paul mm-hmm. ang was literally supposed to be the savior and he you know lived up to the hype yeah uh not no spoilers for avatar but uh <laughs> then you have paul who's out here and more question was you just kind of went mm-hmm. into and it is interesting too because and i think that's something i really appreciated while watching the film you see the atreides as they're going to arrakis and you realize that a they got the assignment from the emperor but uh-huh. b they're really doing it to build up their resources yeah. in order to just become a wealthy family and be able to do more mm-hmm. so and like it the, makes them not- and the, to build on that sorry to uh, cut you off no no right go for it go to for build it. on that is that like one of the first things that they say is that we need desert power on the planet like mm. you want to take advantage of the fremen essentially the native yes of arrakis so definitely it's like double on top it's of actually that. That's perfect, too, because the, the language that Leto used was, we rule Caledon mm-hmm. with air power and sea power. Yeah. So he's like, well, yeah, so it's just that element of power once again. Yeah. So yeah. can't call them uh, good guys. No, you, you can't. I mean, like maybe like Leto Atreides himself could have been like a really noble person because I think his interactions with Stilgar. Because I, I think, sorry, there's like a fruit fly. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I think if you look at, like if you remove all like the political stuff that's going on with like the emperor essentially plotting with house Harkonnen to um, wipe out the Atreides family, you know, maybe it would be different. Maybe uh, Leto Atreides would um, still like wouldn't exploit the Fremen the way that, uh, you know, um, that if they're setting up Paul and Jessica to kind of do. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I think it would kind of go against like the wishes of Dr. Liet Kynes, who was looking to create Arrakis as a lush green planet. And she says that once this people discover the spice, people didn't want that for the planet anymore. So like, I wonder how much pressure like Leto Atreides would have against the Fremen who, mm-hmm. um, you know, want something completely different for the uh, for the planet versus what House Atreides originally set forth to go there for. You know, mm-hmm. it would be an interesting Definitely. like you know thought experiment. But um, absolutely, um, this is my thoughts there. But like, so what did you think though of like um, some of the uh, what was I going to say? How they changed. Uh, like the emperor's immediate involvement because almost from the get-go mm. they um say like it's clear that the emperor's involved in this 
quite explicit, quite explicit. That was interesting. And so it's funny how many times, and I was thinking about the Rick and Morty, mm-hmm. um, like the Bricks Must Be Crazy episode yeah. where they're going into like the miniverse and everything. Mm-hmm. And just the amount of giant ramps I saw going down in the first uh, like 15 minutes of the movie uh-huh. was kind of funny. But they did it for the uh, the Emperor Squad. Yeah. And he's like, Morty, wait, hold up. Let the, let the ramp go down slow. They love that. Like, <laughs> so that's what I was thinking. But um, no, I thought it was it was necessary, I think, for pacing mm-hmm. in order to bring up um, just the, the, the fact that the Emperor's hand was somehow involved. But to your point, something that you said, um, you could have done it a little bit more subtly in order to just kind of allow that same uh, aha moment that the book did. Yeah. So uh, specifically, there's a moment when Duncan, uh, after having made contact with the Fremen, comes and talks to the Atreides and is telling them about, but that would have been an opportunity to maybe say, oh, I think I see, you know, Sardukar, who are the mm-hmm. Emperor's little private army yeah. uh, out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you yeah, know, I thought it was an interesting point. How about you? What were your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, I do think, because for those of you who don't know, for context, in the book Dune, it is not, it's so much, it's like kind of subtly hinted at about why the not only the emperor's involvement it's kind of it's like a bigger reveal in the book and in like the latter half of the book although there's definitely like hints of his involvement very early on and but it's also very subtly hinted at as to his reason why when the when the movie is very very on the nose about it i I understand why they did it. Like, even though I think it, they could have not done it that way and cast suspicion. Like, I'm fine with the dialogue of Leto and Paul talking on Kaladin about, like, the Emperor fears that were growing too popular, too powerful. I'm fine with that because it allows mm-hmm. the audience... Like, that is just quickly glazing over, like, what could be, like, 15 pages in the book of, like, you know explaining politics and they do it in like 30 seconds that hey there could be some darker forces at work here the emperor might be laying a trap for us that is something that leto in the book mentions over and over that they know that dune is a trap and they're gonna go there anyway so but at the same time as you mentioned that like yes there are so many instances that they could have dropped in hints of like when um because the, the problem is they had to introduce somehow the Sadakar, who the Sadakar were. Mm-hmm. Because in the book, they do that, and then they say later on, it's like, I saw Sadakar among the, the soldiers disguised as Harkonnens in the book. But in the movie, they're just there. They're just fully dressed up like they normally are. <laughs> in their own there. colors. Their <laughs> own <laughs> colors. But um, they could have hinted at who the Sadakar were without like fully just formally introducing them with, like, like you mentioned, Duncan coming back fighting after fighting the Fremen and being like they fight as as well as or even might even be better than the Emperor's own forces of the Sadakar. Could have just dropped that line in, and Boom. then like you know, and the, or even somewhere else they could have dropped it in. Like you know, any time where they share like have a scene where Duncan and Gurney are sharing like war stories or something, and like yeah. they could have mentioned like fighting against Sadakar and like the Imperials forces or the fear of the Sadakar somewhere. Throw it in somewhere, um, and then you could like devote time away from having to kind of craft these scenes where it's so clear the emperor is involved, but I understand why they did it. I ha- I do understand mm-hmm. that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And when thinking about the forces that are employed by mm-hmm. some of these families, you do have the Mentat who include uh, Thufur Hawat mm-hmm. as well as Peter. And in the book, mm-hmm. these people were a 
you know, able to have all these giant computational things, and they're basically the the computers, but they're also these trained killers and assassins. And what I thought was interesting in the movie was that they didn't really have that second side. They weren't really killers. They were just there for logistical purposes. Mm -hmm. What were your thoughts on that? Yeah, it was interesting. Like, I thought the Mentots would have a much more significant role because they do in the book. And the word mm. Mentos not even mentioned. <laughs> yeah. It's not even mentioned in the movie. So people are probably looking at Hawa and going, what's up with that guy? If you haven't read the yeah. book, you're probably like, what's up with him? What's up with uh, Peter Devite? I don't know how he says his last name, but uh, like, what's up with Peter? <laughs> like the, the Baron's uh, Mentot. Um, and you're like, I don't really know what's going on, but like, they just seem yeah. like they're logistical counselors. Like they're just a part mm-hmm. of like the inner circle and they handle something. Um, same with Gurney. They don't even mention his title at all. He, war yep. master. He's supposed to be the war master. Duncan is the sword master <laughs> and Fufir Hawad is the men type, but also master of assassins, I think. Yeah. So, there you go. Um, they don't mention their titles. They really just mention Duncan. And then it's like kind of like a side conversation. It's just like kind of dropped in randomly mm-hmm. but it's not like they don't go through all the titles for all these characters and there's a lot of like subplots that they had to cut out like it's it's really funny that there's like some characters that just disappear and you don't know what kind of happens to them but in the book i know what happens to them and like yeah, it's just like where yeah. where do they go like gurney halleck's character just disappears after the battle through fear hall disappears after the battle but like <laughs> i guess they wanted to save what happens there in part for part two but um, definitely and i'm curious here so what did you think of the okay what did you think of the portrayals of we won't even go hot for now we'll just go duncan as well as uh gally kearney or, yeah. gosh darn i always miss up the they're just so close in the alphabet <laughs> yeah, dude. yeah no that's fine i actually <laughs> you know Halleck. i'm gonna just expand that real quick and say i think everyone's performance was excellent in the movie I think every character did a fantastic job. Um, I don't mm-hmm. think there was anybody who was bad. I, I think the writing yeah. was excellent for a book adaptation. Like that was super well done for a book adaptation, especially a novel so wildly complex as Dune. They did a really good job, mm-hmm. and they did have to use some expository like just dialogue, which <laughs> is never. It's kind of like a no go in movies, you know. Like you, you don't really want to do that. Um, but they they had to. It's it's too complex of a story, and it saves time. Um, so uh, overall, I I liked all the choices. I thought everybody was pretty great for you know who they're uh, supposed to embody. Um, what about you though? What'd you think? No, I really enjoy. Like you said, all all great performances from everybody. Nobody like phoned it in or anything. Um, in terms of Gurney Halleck, <laughs> I um. <laughs> I thought it's interesting. He was a little bit more. He's light, very kind of lighthearted in the book. Yes, he and is. So he has those moments of just you know humor, but then he can also become quite serious. I thought that Josh Brolin played him more serious, but honestly, I thought it worked for just the, mm-hmm. uh, especially knowing his background that the Harkonnens had him in like kind of their slave. Uh, yeah, uh, I thought that was like Duncan. Was not was that not Duncan who was rescued from them, or was that Gurney? Couldn't I thought that was Gurney. Oh, that was Gurney. Okay, I thought it was Duncan. I think, yeah, yeah. Uh, because he met because he mentions it in part two. Oh, in part two. Okay. I don't want to say why. Okay. I don't want to I, I, but then with uh, Duncan, dude. A, I love me some Jason Momoa. Mm-hmm. But B, I loved how he played it almost as while he's Paul's, you know, 
trainer. Mm-hmm. He played it kind of like a, a big brother, mm-hmm. and I thought that was really cool, especially kind of when it comes to protecting Paul. Yeah. And then you saw some of their just side moments that were super small, mm-hmm. but he calls him a boy, and they keep it. So I was yeah. cheering him on, and I thought it was interesting. They gave him a lot more time as a character than I think the book did. But contrast that with, in the book, they gave a lot more time to Dr. Yue, and they didn't do that in the movie. So yeah. what were your thoughts around that? Yeah, um, I know it was tough. I think for them, like, I think it's just like, oh, we're on a time constraint, you know. I, mm-hmm. I Yes, they did not give enough time to Dr. Yue. It's just kind of like he just shows up and do, does his role. Like, he does his very important role in the movie. Um, but in the book, he's like, you see his internal struggle in the book. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. he doesn't want to do what he's doing, but he's like, my, my wife, you know, I have to do this. I I have no choice. They have, you know, like it, like it's like, it pains him and they give a lot more development to that character. So like when his betrayal is finally realized that he finally goes through with it, it, like, it kind of like you're like ooh no no <laughs> yeah. no like, ah, um, so <laughs> but I understand for the movie's uh, perspective that they just kind of had to cut that short because the thing you needed to know about him is like they have his wife and that's why he did this that was it yeah. like that's like that's the if you had a spark note his little story <laughs> in Dune that's like why he that's it and that's basically Absolutely. what they had to do. Um, but like talking about other no. side plots that they cut out, Gurney Halleck and his smuggling operation. Like, want to talk yes. about that? Like, that's like absolutely. Yeah, because there were some characters who were introduced in the book at this one particular dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, some who have, were actually involved with the emperor and had imperial ties, and then some who were just smugglers that the Atreides were kind of trying to bring into their circle in order to advance their own family's power, and so. By the end of part one, I guess, in the book, as everything's going down, uh, Gurney Halleck actually hops on, on board with the smugglers and goes that route. But it's not discussed in the movie. See, for me, I would have liked to know, at least give me a hint as to where the characters are going, because we don't know if he's dead or alive. And I know Paul, you know, eventually knows without knowing, mm-hmm. but, or without someone telling him but at the same time i would have liked as the viewer to because we've spent time yeah. getting to know him mm-hmm. so or and even like duncan like yeah so just i mean we know what happens duncan. yeah i know like yeah. it, it was gurney <laughs> like, gurney hat was there when the harkonnens attacked right he yeah, yeah he was sleeping and then he was getting the guys yeah, yeah, to yeah. come through yeah no but i meant in the a book like he was there uh, right or was he already yes yeah. yes he was. okay so like it's just odd to me that yes the, the they they cut that very important part that his relationships to the smugglers because it's weird because Jessica even mentions smugglers at the end mm-hmm. of um, the movie. So it's not like that they, they forgot that there's smugglers and that's <laughs> a big around. plot line for Kearney because I'm pretty sure later on that's where he's found is that he's among the smugglers. And, mm-hmm. yep. um, but it's just odd to me that the, that was not brought up the at all throughout the entire movie, even though that's so central to Gurney Halleck's character's arc in uh, this story. And I know the book itself doesn't play too much as to his actual journey, but, like, you see the setup, him going off, and then you don't really kind of see it until, like, the end, the payoff. But um, Mm -hmm. up until that point, it's just... It was just weird to me because you're kind of left in limbo for some of these characters, like Gurney Halleck, like, what happened to him? 
and Thufir Hawat, like what happened to him. Yep. Um, yeah, he completely disappeared. He compl- they both completely disappeared. You last see Gurney Halleck's character or Josh Brolin's character just running off fighting the Harkonnens at the battle, and that is it. That's the last time you see yep. him, um, which was odd to me. So mm-hmm. that's that. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I was going to say something, but through fear as well, I feel like we needed to learn just a little bit more about him yeah. because he's well-regarded not only by the Atreides, but also the Harkonnens and others within, I guess, the galaxy. And um, he's going to play an important role as the book continues to go on. Yeah. Maybe they'll develop him a little bit more in part two. I think I so, too. I think they have to because he does play a pretty pivotal role in part two. Um, mm-hmm. uh, like... And it, and it genuinely might be like a shock value that they might be leaving for kind of what happens with him, um, which is fine by me if they want to go that route because we don't really see. I mean, I, I don't know. It's just weird because we do see the Baron kind of recovering. And so it's yep. just odd to me that um, like Fufir Hawat's uh, uh, well-being isn't shown. Um, and then, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, like it did seem like that was a little bit of an oversight, but I wonder if that was just more of like, okay, we just need to show their fates at the beginning of like part two or something. Mm -hmm. Um, because we need to get to here in part one and we just don't have time for that right now in part two. So, or or, uh, for this in part one, but I mean, there's still Mm -hmm. so much to the book. So like, I mean, I'm really curious to kind of see how they're going to juggle it all. Uh, it's going to be, it's definitely going to be, uh, a tough but um i know we talked about a lot about oh sorry go ahead no 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 go for it go for uh, it i was just gonna say i know we talked a lot about how like the book has differed and thing like the book differed from the movie but now we can maybe go back and through each scene and like talk about uh, all that you are a mind reader again there bud because i was gonna say one scene in particular that stands out to me not only in the movie but in the book as well is the gom jabber scene yes when yeah, the Reverend Mother uh, tests Paul in the ways of the Bene Desert, kind of just to see if he's a, a human mm-hmm. or will revert to his animal instincts. What were your thoughts around that? I know we watched the entire you know broken down scene. Yeah, I honestly but. might be my favorite scene in the movie. It's up there with mm-hmm. the entire Harkonnen raid on the Atreides. Like, that whole sequence was yeah. amazing. But um, just so visually incredible. Um, mm-hmm. But the... Uh, the Gamjabar scene. I think it's a very pivotal, pivotal, pivotal moment. There we go. Uh, there go. With um, Paul, because this is where he's really kind of his character kind of awakens a little bit. Like uh, it's even like hinted at by Leto when like Jessica goes and sees like he's not been the same since you brought him to your reverend mother. Um, and I'm like, yeah, mm. because it isn't. It's like where his powers start to awaken um truly awaken and, and it gets mm-hmm. further enhanced when it's with the fremen but um so like i love everything about that scene like i mean i am going to borrow a little bit from what denis villeneuve said in no that, no go like, for it director breakdown borrow. but like the way the entire like framing of the shot like the dark room like the mysterious figure with the hood over her face i thought that was a very nice touch that denis like decided like last second to put the veil put the veil over her face instead of like, cause he's talking about in that video that she, it was meant to originally 
just be up so you can see her face because you have Charlotte ramping, you know, like she's an incredibly talented actress. Like why wouldn't you want to be able to see her face? But I think it adds so much more to this, this power dynamic that's going on between Paul and um, the Bene Gesture, the Reverend mother. And like, it's just honestly phenomenal acting by uh, Timothy Chalamet and Charlotte ramping in this scene. Yeah. When he has to like put his hand into the box and then like literally like, it's like, so your hand's on fire, or like you're going to be thinking your hand is on fire in this scene. And um, just the entire way that they portray it is just so, so well done. Instead of, like, uh, being really explicit about it, they kind of, like, flash imagery of kind of what he might be feeling. And I, mm-hmm. I like that approach so, so, so well. But what, what did you think Absolutely. of that Absolutely. No, dude, I agree. And specifically in the moment, and I know Denise mentioned it, but... There is a second where Paul's hand is in the box Mm -hmm. and he's starting to scream out and is told, be quiet. And um, then all of a sudden you see his face go from one of pain to just one of this intensity and he's staring right at her. Mm -hmm. I know that's when the uh, power dynamic is supposed to change, but I think once again it reflects that there's this thing inside of him that's starting to come out and she realizes, oh man, I might have just messed up. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was such a... I can't even call it subtle, but it was just so well done. Mm-hmm. I I thoroughly enjoyed it. And like you said, he they had him go over. Um, she used the voice on him, too. Yes. Which I thought that was interesting the way they did the voice. It was, I, I think, for her, a mixture of just older women's voices. Mm-hmm. Because then he was like, I want all the, the my grandmothers to have a voice. Yeah. And so they cut short the whole moment in which Paul walks over and like he's coming, too. So you basically completely yeah. lose all of your uh, inhibitions and your willpower while you're being uh, overwhelmed by this voice. Mm-hmm. But dude, that was, and the fact that it occurred so early on in the movie, I think really helped to set the tone for the rest of the film. Yeah. I mean, I, I love how they portrayed the voice in this movie. I thought it would, it was going to be like difficult. Like I was always curious, like how they would portray it, but it was really well done. Like the way, like they show how it would feel to be compelled by the voice like your mind basically goes blank you lose like consciousness for a second and, like you're suddenly you're there like you're transported like you went under anesthesia and you wake up mm, in like a yep. second <laughs> and you don't even realize it that's what that happened it's um i thought it was really well done and like he talks about how he does that in that director like breakdown of the scene where they like dim they turn off all the lights and do like a dolly shot out to like show consciousness being lost so Super, super well yes, done. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, any other scenes stand out to you there, bud? I mean, I'm down to just, like, kind of go through the movie. So, like... Okay, yeah. Um, after that, I mean, I love how, though, that scene, additionally, going back to the Gamja Bar scene, that, like, it flashes between uh, Jessica and, like, Paul, like, and how she is mm-hmm. kind of, like, fighting. Because um, she's supposed to be a Benny Jester, just someone who works as, like, a shadow organization and and like not really supposed to be like so i guess attached to her son in a way uh i don't really I, I, that's always the impression that i've got that like she's supposed to be no. working more like her priority should be more for the order rather than to her own son but i do love that she's like reciting the litany of fear to herself and like yep it's so good love that quote one question i always had though because the Reverend Mother even says you were supposed to have a daughter. Mm-hmm. Do they get to just control that? How does that yeah, work? Yeah, I think they do. I think they do get to control that because, I mean, it's the year is like, I think Dune is kind of supposed to be like a what human p- potential can look like in like 10,000 years. 
Interesting. Okay. Because everybody kept saying that. And I said, how is she supposed to <laughs> But now yeah. that makes and sense. I think the Bene Gesserit also um, have also like uh, tapped in potential on how to like morph their like, you know, physiology. So mm-hmm. I think that is another thing that um, they can do. Is like It's actually very people. fair. Yeah. Because I remember Jessica said that she knew she was pregnant mm-hmm. after just a week or two, mm-hmm. which obviously technology cannot tell us. Yeah. So there you go. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, it's it's implied. It's more implied in the movie, but um, which is another thing that the movie doesn't tell you is that the computers and AI is completely gone in this world. There's no mention mm-hmm. of it. It's just you kind of have to pay attention to the visual storytelling around you that to know that, um, which I think can also be confusing as to what is the significance of spices, because the reason that they use spice is because there is no AI to let get them to navigate through the stars. They have to rely on the human's mind using spice to navigate the safest paths. Yeah. So. Which I didn't, imp- I, I, you told me that after I read the book, uh-huh. but I thought they explicitly said that early on. So I said, okay, now people at least know, kind of what the spice does yeah. so that was good that was good mm-hmm. but yeah so after that scene they head out mm-hmm. go to arrakis and then they're touching down what did you think of the changing of power from harken into atreides that scene where leto and everybody just steps out for the first time onto the planet well i think i think it's a little funny that they had like the freaking organ pipes or whatever like what what is happening right now um yeah. but uh it was it was cool i mean it, it i liked it but or, or no i mean i did like it the scale and everything all the ships the soldiers all that stuff like um it it was awesome to see uh, i don't really have like much to say about like how that would look from like versus the Harkonnens. I think like Leto Atreides knows that it's going to be a trap and that, you know, he's Mm -hmm. here to, he's got a lot of weight on his shoulders to protect his family, get spice production running, please the emperor, please the emperor. Um, (laughs) Yeah. That guy. So, you know, you can't refuse and like, it'll be tough, but what do you think of that whole scene sequence? No, I loved the, the muted colors, especially as you're looking out onto Iraq mm-hmm. for the first time, that contrast of darkness that they're coming from the darkness into the light. Yeah. When in reality, they're actually entering the darkness, <laughs> if you really think about yeah. it. And then, like you said with Leto, there was a moment that was so subtle when he looks back at Paul. Mm-hmm. And uh, he just, it's just this confirmation. Like you said, I know that was going through his head, mm-hmm. especially because in the book, what I think they were able to do, obviously a little bit easier, um, was just show how much it was wearing on him in the book they had these pills that allow them to overcome fatigue and exhaustion so he was taking those mm-hmm. and he said he was really trying to hide that even paul makes mention of his father was more fatigued than he was trying to let on but he could still see it yeah so uh i thought that was a good way to show that he knows what's about to happen mm-hmm. and kind of come down on them yeah and it's also funny like how gurney like has to like tell paul's like i don't think you realize what's happened to us like we've signed our own, mm-hmm. we've signed a death warrant. Like we're, we're you just like, you have to be ready. Like I don't, and I also don't think they expected the Harkonnens to attack so quickly. Um, yes. I think yes. they were anticipating not a full frontal assault, but rather more kind of subtle, like 
I think mm-hmm. what the movie was trying to show was that they left us faulty equipment. We can't get spice production back up. The Emperor's going to have my head because I can't get the production. Like, that's what they think the Harkonnens are trying to do with maybe some subtlety sabotage of them trying to assassinate. What I don't think they anticipated was a full frontal assault by the Harkonnens. And I think the movie tried mm-hmm. to portray that, but I don't know how many people would have caught that. Definitely, because a lot of times what they were doing was having Hawat just discuss figures. Uh-huh. So when they just had the emperor's envoy come and drop off his little gang of friends, mm-hmm. who you know tell them that now you're he uh, Leto asked the question, "How much does this cost?" And he basically told him a lot of money. Yeah. So they constantly have that go back just to show the financial strains. So like you said, I think they were trying to subdue subdue you into this false sense of okay, they can't really afford to do anything crazy, so mm-hmm. it'll be just espionage last something a little bit hurt him in the mm-hmm. in the purse as opposed yeah. to physically like that mm-hmm. and i like i and so that i think caught them off guard and so they probably thought they had more time which is why because you see that they're already trying to plan their operations and they even say to hawat it's going to take time a lot of time to get the fremen on our side and so like because mm-hmm. they see the fremen as an ability to basically match against the sadakar Yep. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I thought they did a really good job of explaining that prior estimations of the Fremen were a lot smaller mm-hmm. than the actual number that were yeah. on the planet. And that also could have been a perfect scene to actually introduce the Emperor's potential involvement if, if like they yep. say like if the Fremen could be as strong as the Sadakar, we could have our own Sadakar on our own planet. Yeah, that can significantly increase our power, and maybe we can go after the throne. Like, could have been a really good moment of like power politics right there. Um, yup. So, hey, Denis, if you need another uh, consultant for that script, get Charlie Butt <laughs> on this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, oh, I understand why they had to do it, but like, there's also ways they if they didn't want to be so on the nose with um, uh, the the emperor's involvement, which the book is not. Um, then. They could have done like there's I'm just giving you examples of ways they could have done it. Yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. Oh man. One scene I did like following that was the hunter seeker scene. Yes. In which Paul is just doing his training. And then all of a sudden you see this little device mm. slide into the room set to kill him. Yeah. And he has to remain perfectly still and then grab it. What did you think of that scene when you read it in the book? And then what did you think about its portrayal on the in the film? Uh when I read it in the book, um, I was like, oh, wow, shit's going down. <laughs> like, I was like, dang, yeah. dude, this, like, things are escalating already. And even though I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it's like page, like, 120 or 30 or something. <laughs> um, and, uh, like, but it, it's, it was, um, I liked it. I love that. That seems, kind of, I think, was pretty true to the book. Like, he might have been mm-hmm. in bed or something and he, like, notices the, the Hunter Seeker flying. And it's been a while, but, I like that scene a lot. Um, it's just it, it's it's like a really maturing scene, I guess, for Paul because it shows how calm he is yeah. and senses in sense of danger and like um, also incredibly aware. Like awareness is like heightened and stuff like that. So I really mm-hmm. like that. What do you think of it? No, definitely. I think kind of to go off of the point we just made. I think that started to show a slight bit of the escalation mm-hmm. from okay, we're just gonna hurt you financially to no we're actually trying to kill you as the harkonnens yeah. to take out the atreides and something that they reflected in the movie that 
they had a whole basically chapter on Felito's perspective was like they came after my son and he uses that quote in the movie and I thought that Oscar Isaac delivered that line perfectly yeah. but uh, I thought it was the perfect to show uh, perfect scene to show a Paul's battle prowess and just his um, ability to stay calm under uh, situations that involve pressure. Mm-hmm. But B, also the fact that the Harkonnens are pulling no punches and they will kill even the 15-year-old, I guess, heir to the the ducal position in order to advance their own position. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yes, yes, so yes. This now brings us to, because that scene, and like, I mean, it's not much longer until I think the Harkonnens actually attack mm-hmm. from yep. there. Definitely. Um, so, what do you want? Like, what did you think of the entire sequence of the Harkonnens' assault on Arakin? Oh man, dude, I loved it. I loved it because at first you see the it's. It, I think it's a really good metaphor for just Harkonnen versus the treaties. At the moment, they're basically pressed against each other, and nobody has an advantage, even though the Harkonnens are trying to catch them while they're sleeping. Mm-hmm. They even said earlier that the Treaties have the best fighters in yes. you know, their known galaxy, and then the Sardaukar were like, whoa, hold, hold up, up, hold, hold up, up, hold up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Mm-hmm. But then, um, so it's equal at first, and then you see the Sardaukar just drop from the back, which I was loved it. such a I good loved shot. It. And, like, it's just, it's always, like, so silent, and, like, I just love how they slowly descend, and you just, like, oh, damn. Like, <laughs> yeah, dude. I love yeah. how the, all the Harkonnen are like, Sardaukar! Like, <laughs> yeah. It's like, we got this now, yeah. we got this. Mm-hmm. And I loved that, like you said, just there were moments where the sound went completely out for a second mm-hmm. and you were you just left there like, wait, what's happening? Mm-hmm. I think it helped to kind of disorient you as a viewer. And then all of a sudden, boom, mm-hmm. and they're blasting through the shields. And I love the use of blue until it goes red where your knife can actually start cutting through. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was so well done. Yeah. It was so well done. Mm-hmm. And then I thought also they did a good job of cutting from the action on, I guess, the front lines to what's happening behind the scenes with A, Paul and Jessica being kidnapped and then b what's happening with Lido and dr ua yeah. I, I i like that a lot it was it was the spectacle was amazing like the them dropping what i forget what they're called in uh the book but like the freaking nukes on their ship to like just completely oh the atomics yeah the atomics on yeah blowing it all up and just like this hellfire missiles raining down everywhere it was just so crazy i love the little touch of beast Raban like beheading surrendered like are uh, Atreides soldiers to show the brutality of the Harkonnens. It was just so, so well done. And the whole, like, oh. yeah, I didn't even, like, pick up on that. But the fact that the Harkonnens, as you mentioned, attacked them while they were sleeping is just, like, a, such a nuts, another dirty trick by the Harkonnens <laughs> that, like, but it's so in their character to do that. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I loved the sequences with the Baron beforehand. Mm-hmm. When he's basically staking claim over uh, Arrakis, and yeah. he's like, "It's my dude. dude," and you see him rise up, mm-hmm. and it's like, "Oh, this guy is such a tool." Dylan Skarsgård gave an absolutely chilling performance as uh, the Baron Harkonnen, dude. He's like, "When is a gift not a gift?" Oh man, that was perfect. Mm-hmm. That was perfect. And the score of dude. the movie, dude, is just unbelievable. Hans Zimmer did himself. He was really feeling mm-hmm. it. He was on top of his game at that point. Yeah. The the oh, theme man. for the Harkonnens is like I think my favorite. It's just it's just so like the deep dark beats that they like he's got and like oh so good, <laughs> dude. so good. 
Absolutely. And actually, I think he might have played that in the scene following the sack of the Atreides mm -hmm. in which they had Duke Leto just kind of laid up mm -hmm. and he's eating, the Baron's eating dinner across. From Such a great Mujua. scene, I have to add. <laughs> it's just like the Baron's a gluttonous, like, and like, it's like, I forget what he says, like something kitchen or like. Like, oh my yeah like, yeah 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 it's like this guy will he ever stop eating my gosh <laughs> oh man and then he has the hover he floats over yeah. basically to ua and and then here was something i thought was interesting in the book it was peter who killed ua yeah. but in the movie it was the baron mm -hmm. Why do you think they made that choice? I think they wanted to make that choice to kind of really show how sinister and evil the Baron is. Because, like, mm -hmm. if if Peter did it, I I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, like, I feel like if Peter did it, it would have given off, like, a different, like, because Peter's not really shown to be that vibe. He's shown to be, like, true, true. Um, calculated and cold mm -hmm. and, like, uh, but kind of, like, the right hand man to the Baron who takes all the ridiculous, like the harsher violent action, but Peter's just there to kind of advise him. So in like a way, like, yes, while he does do that in the book, I felt like it was more fitting in a way for the Baron to actually be the one to kill UA because that just shows the brutality that he leads his own house with. Yes. Mm. Yes. Very valid point. Mm. All right. I'm here for that. Mm. Dude. Such a, such a good. Scene. And then, you had the tooth. What did you think of that when uh, Oscar Isaacs just says something and it's mumbled mm -hmm. and then the Baron asks for clarification and then he crushes the um, poison? That's like, I, I remember in the book, it was a I felt like it was more drawn out in the book. Um, mm -hmm. I felt like there was a lot more like happening and, uh, but anyway, I mean, I, I don't know. I liked it. It felt pretty faithful to the book in that sense. Like that, you know, he just like cracks his tooth when the Baron got close to him and he just tried to take them all out. And I remember the Baron in the book just like freaking out that um, there was like poison gas and all that stuff, which for another weird reason, I always thought Raban was in the room with them when that happened. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. he was somewhere else. Yeah. Um, yeah. But as we know, the Baron survives the attacks miraculously somehow. Uh, um, but I, I, it was a good scene. I thought it was like for a momentary, you think it's probably a victory for the Atreides to just like they kind of kill each other off in the end. But <laughs> turns out it's not what happens. But it's a short lived nope. victory because it's not much longer till you see the Baron again. And it was smart, uh, the detail, because it was the case in the book, but when you see him activate his shield, yes. because that's ultimately what was mm -hmm. the thing that saved his life. Yes, it is. Ugh. If only he had it. <laughs> if only he had it. But he was a cautious and smart man, I guess. The Baron yep. Harkonnen. Vladimir Harkonnen. Vladimir. Um, oh, man. Yeah, he, uh, he was a little baddie there. And that was honestly, I think... One of the last sequences we saw him, well, you find out that obviously he survives after that. Yeah. But then for the rest of the movie, it's really focused in on Jessica and Paul yes. and their travels through the desert. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I'm actually really curious what you thought about the scene. So after they escape uh, Arakeen and they make it out into the desert, they set up a tent in the dunes and um, Paul basically has his uh, vision of, you know, the crusade that is coming. I'm curious what you thought about that whole scene and how that kind of compared to the books. 
Hey, bro, I I don't know what it was about some of the sequences of the crusade, but just the way they sh- I remember there was that moment where you see them on the ship. It's him, Chani, and Chani looking down. They got the, yeah. the flow of the capes going, mm-hmm. and the people are just cheering the trees. And I said, "Oh man, that that was chill." I thought that was such a mm-hmm. such a good shot. And then um, four back actually within the tent as he's seeing this and he's coming to grips with the fact that he has this weird prescient vision. Mm-hmm. I thought that was very very true to the book. Mm-hmm. I thought. Interestingly enough, I know they obviously have some limitations given what they can do. I thought Paul had more of a freak out mm-hmm. as well as he saw he understood what was happening to him a little bit more than it felt like he did necessarily in the movie. Yeah. But I don't know if that's they're doing it that way because we're gonna have part two, so we'll be able to explore that more with the mm-hmm. Fremen. But that's just that was my fault. How about how about yeah, you? Yeah, I kind of agree with that sense. I felt like when he was having the visions of um the crusade he kind of like understood what was happening like in whereas in the movie he's like he's obviously in the book i think he is freaked out about it like he doesn't but he's more freaked out in the sense he's just like the bloodshed in my name why are they doing this in yes. my name like there's ch- they're, they're funny enough in the book i'm pretty sure there's chant they're chanting muadib muadib but um mm. in the movie they're just saying there's like he actually says my father's name they're saying they people keep saying my name they keep saying paul but like in the book it's actually muadib and he's like the religion of muadib and his uh jihad as the book calls it um but uh like i in the movie it seems like he was kind of understood that it was the bene gesserit's doing that he is Mm. seeing this but at the same time, he also seemed a little confused as to why it was happening, like why he was seeing this, like what it could possibly be leading to. Whereas in the book, he kind of understands that he thinks that like some of the choices that he makes on Arrakis, like by even going to Arrakis, that like in him trying to survive is what's going to lead to that. And um, whereas in the tent, he's not really sure. And also I felt like the dream was recurring in the book like it was something that yes, was constantly yes, yes, brought yes. up and something he constantly feared whereas in the movie they had they just showed it one time and i wonder if they're going to re-explore <laughs> that theme mm-hmm. again in part two as he's kind of becoming um who he becomes <laughs> without trying to uh, <laughs> not spoiling because i just realized i said muadi but they referenced it no. they referenced it uh, with a little mm-hmm. like when and the, he flashed the little, the little rat like a little des- mouse, yeah, desert mouse yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah but um and it's interesting too because in the book at that moment he told his mom that he would be called muadib mm-hmm. and then he told her what alia would be called and mm-hmm. he said he revealed some other things that are to come i guess in part two yeah. but they kept it closer to the chest in the movie yeah. and they didn't reveal all that quite mm-hmm. yet so they did reveal <laughs> that um jessica is pregnant and that she gives birth so yes um but we <laughs> They don't know what that that daughter is, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or who she becomes. Yeah. Um, so, absolutely. All right, or even if it's a girl. And, whoops. <laughs> oh, true. My bad. Sorry, people. Sorry. <laughs> um, it was just a baby. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know. Uh, gender reveal party. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I was gonna say something interesting that they they really glanced over in the book, but also came in that moment. Something that bothers Jessica a lot is the fact that she was always a concubine and was never made mm. the wife. Yeah. And in the book, there's some somebody's told they're told that there's a traitor among them. And Leto 
knows it's not her, but he yes, you're tries right. to get back. I forgot about that entire suspects. plot. They know that someone's a traitor. There's a spy mm-hmm. within the House of Trades ranks. I completely forgot about that plot line, but yeah. continue, continue. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, no, no. And so um, he tries to... I'm sorry, didn't Gurney like, oh, no, go heavily suspect that it was Jessica? I think Gurney did, and so did Hawat. Yes, Hawat like, didn't. Eh, Hawat, I think, in the books, hated the Ben Gesserit. Yeah, yeah, he called them, because she said they had a scene with just him and her, and he, she said, say what you were going to say. He's like, witches. I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> that, that relationship is, is not at all explored in the yeah. movie. Yeah, true. I actually forgot that they didn't even have that scene. Yeah. Wow. Well, that, that entire subplot of like them even knowing that there's a spy among them doesn't happen in the movie. And then the entire like hatred that Hawa has with the Bene Gesserit is not even explored. Mm-hmm. He actually so that's seems gonna be fine interesting how her. we do that in part two. Yeah. yeah, yeah, dude. They had like a because he like led her and Paul mm-hmm. onto a a ship, and they just seemed yeah. buddy buddy. Mm-hmm. But um, so in the book when that happens, uh, Leto tells Paul, "If something happens to me, make sure your mother knows I never suspected her, and I'm sad I never married her." Mm-hmm. And then in the movie, they had him say just while they're laying up, uh, the the Duke actually says to Jessica, "I should have married you." That yeah. I thought it would have meant so much more. If, yeah. But I know their time. But ah, goodness gracious. I know. Yeah. I know. I mean, yeah, it would have been so hard for them to like squeeze that entire subplot in. And, like, the <laughs> yeah. movie was already two and a half hours long, and like, the, I don't know, man. I hope one day like Denny just does like an eight hour release of part one and two. <laughs> And like, I'm here for all of Just it. like, give it to me, man. <laughs> just like, give me the Villeneuve cut. Give me the Villeneuve cut. Um, I want to see him explore all those lines and plot lines and all that stuff. So I, I wonder if he shot all of that and just like decided to like. I am like, curious too. Or, just had to cut yeah. it. That would be awesome if he did. Mm-hmm. And then just had to shoot other scenes in order to make them fit yeah. the way it came out now. So that then he could go back and do his own like director's mm-hmm. cut. Yeah, I wonder if he oh, did. Oh, man. Because, like, Jason Momoa is like, I want him to release his, like, four-hour cut. I'm like, is there even a four-hour cut? Like, you're saying oh. that there is, <laughs> but, like, is there actually a four-hour cut of this movie? Because, I mean, Do you I want to see it. we don't know, Jason? Yeah, you know something? Oh, I want to see it, too. I want to see that. But, um, yeah, I completely forgot about that. I'm like, I was, like, actually thinking this when we were watching it again the second time. I'm like, wasn't there a character who hated the Bene Gesserit, and I thought it was Halleck, but I'm like, no, that doesn't make sense. But then I was like, oh, it's Hawat just now. It's Thufir Hawat mm-hmm. who hates the Bene Gesserit. But, yeah. Um, Goodness. To be fair, he has so then, every right to hate them. If you, oh, if you really I, think critically about like who that organization actually is or what they yep. are. Um, and the fact that he's not only there mentally in terms of as a mentor, but also he can kill people. Yeah. He's pretty good at that. I pretty terrifying. Yeah, he has all the right to do that. Mm-hmm. Or to consider that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no. So after all of that goes down, then we're up in the desert. We see a sandworm. We actually saw one a little bit earlier. Yeah. But how did you think that the design of those came out? Uh, you know, pretty pretty much what I imagined them to be look okay. like. You know, like just giant worms with big mouths <laughs> and a it's lot of teeth. It's an Alaskan bullworm. <laughs> Yeah, basically, I wonder if that was derived from Dune. That would be awesome if it was, dude. Um, I love the scale that they show when it's eating the spice catcher because that thing was humongous. Mm-hmm. And then its whole mouth just encompasses yep. that device. Oh, yeah, we so. completely went over, like, we 
completely missed the spice harvester scene, but um, that's okay. <laughs> that's a great scene. It's just like it, 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 it doesn't is. add too much to the overall story. Mm-hmm. It just like kind of shows the nobility of maybe how uh, Duke Leto, Atreides. Yeah, and it introduces Kynes, yeah. who is the. Mm-hmm. And it introduces um, you more it? to the world and the worms and all that stuff, but um, mm-hmm. which is all great. And all, don't get me wrong; it's a fantastic scene in in the in the movie, and, and it does happen in the book, so it's not just like something they threw in there. Yeah, <laughs> they didn't yes. have the time to add a new entire subplots. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, that does happen in both the movie and the book. But um, let's talk about that. I guess we're almost at an hour already. If you can believe that. I mean, I figured we would. Yeah, it's going to be a long episode, everybody. This. So yeah. buckle Sit in. Back, relax. Um, <laughs> uh, so let's circle back to uh, them going through the desert. So okay, um, they eventually run into Dr. Light Kinds because Duncan Idaho finds them, which I think I'm when I rewatched it, I realized that he found them because of like the thumper or whatever the thing is that Duncan gives them. That's how he found okay. them. Because that's why Paul okay. says someone's coming. I didn't put that together around too, yeah. so that's good. That's because in the book it's a little different on how he finds them. Yeah. Um, so, yes. anyways, they get found, and then Late Kinds is with them, and uh, I loved this upcoming scene when they're at the ecological center. Because um, now you get a little backstory of the environmentalism that is kind of, which is kind of taking a back seat in the movie. But it is still yeah, there yeah. for sure, and I bet you they'll explore it more in part two when we kind of dive more into the Fremen culture, because um, mm-hmm. that Fremen were only like in the background in part one, even though they're going to be massively in the foreground of yeah. part two. Um, but I, I just like I love how they kind of like talked a little bit about the environmentalism that is going on, and like how, and I love like the line where like yeah, nobody wants Dune to be a lush planet because of its resources. Like they don't care about our well-being, which I think is a perfect commentary <laughs> on like modern imperialism, which is what yep. the book kind of is at the same time. Um, so, uh, but I loved the sequence where the Fremen are like gathering around, like talking about like Paul, and he's like, oh, I don't think he's the Mahdi or whatever, and then like. They just hear like the slightest sound, and it's the sort of car, and then they just mm. like freaking, and it just goes silent. The movie just goes silent, oh. and they land down there, and like so, yep. such a good shot. I loved everything about that shot. The cinematography was so amazing, and they like pan, they sh- they cut back to the where they had like their water tea kettle whatever it was just like it's in the sand mm-hmm. now and it's just like oh shit like what's gonna yeah, happen yeah dude i just love absolutely that. love that scene what'd you think what'd you think no once again kind of I, I love like what he's doing with the sardu car mm-hmm. and i'm hoping it comes back through um in i guess part two mm-hmm. but just like you said just the sound cut mm-hmm. and then just there's a it almost makes them more ominous and there's just this level of brutality they have like the second they land people start dying yeah. no matter what mm-hmm. so they start taking it. and something subtle that i'd forgotten about was initially paul had had a dream about duncan a finding the fremen mm-hmm. but b you'd see he said you died and in that you don't see duncan but you see this little bug yeah and then fast forward to this scene you see duncan literally reaching out for the same bug yeah. 
And that should have been the cue, like, uh-oh, uh-oh. something's about to go so down. So I actually didn't make that connection when I was watching the movie. Both okay. times did not make that connection, but glad you picked I up. I got it the second yeah. time around. Uh, thank <laughs> you, thank you. Glad you picked up but no, I, dude, that was... And then, uh, uh, uh okay, so scene keeps playing out. People are dying. Paul is... I just, just, just want to say slow. I love how the Fremen, like... Burst out of the sand. I love that ambush, dude. Dude, what a that was dude. so sick. And that's something that they repeatedly show that they do is that they come out of the sand. Which is that a detail in I, the book? I can't remember. I don't think yeah. so. And also, they showed initially early on in the movie Chani and the Fremen attacking kind of the spice uh, as they're like mining mm-hmm. spice. And I was trying to remember if that happened in the book. I know that they obviously butt heads and whatnot, mm-hmm. and that the Sardukar. Now, the, the Harkonnens are tasked with finding them and killing them, but at the same time, I don't remember them being so direct in their attacks against the Harkonnens. Mm-hmm. Slash, they had a weapon that took out those things. Like, yeah. So I don't know. Actually, that could be a flash forward, and maybe I'm going crazy. But I don't remember if that. I mean, I remember like them mentioning that, like, yeah, we've had a lot of you know battles with the Harkonnens over the like 80 years that they've been on our planet. So it could have been just like one of those that they kind of took little creative liberties with, but. Yeah, I don't mm-hmm. recall that specifically happening, um, like that that, okay. that sequence at all. But, I mean, I know that they have mentioned in that book that, like, yeah, we've had battles with the Harkonnens and, like, all that stuff. Because also the Harkonnens <laughs> thought there was only 50,000 Fremen. Truth. So there's way more. There's millions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But I loved the – I, I hated it and I loved this. The moment when Kynes realizes what's happening, they all do – and of course, my man Duncan turns around, mm-hmm. hits the button to close the door and seal them off so they can escape. And he puts on his grown man pants and goes and takes out some Sardaukar. Yep. Takes him out, sacrifices <sighs> his life to protect his duke, protect his boy. Dude. Yeah. Mm. I felt that. When you just said that, I felt mm-hmm. that. Because he was down and then he got back up, took, him took out. out some more. Took him out. And then they split up to go find the Fremen kinds. He's yep. gonna ride a worm, and yeah. What did you think about them kind of like uh, starting to introduce that at that point? Because it did not happen like that in the book. No, it didn't. Um, I thought it was a good kind of foreshadowing for what will happen mm-hmm. in part two, even though like they kind of more explicitly state that in. Um, at the very end of part one, which it actually turns out it was not Stilgar because you see him okay. quite literally in the scene. I watched it again. I'm like, okay, it's not Stilgar. Um, I don't know who it is then <laughs> who's riding the worm <laughs> at the end of part one. Random Fremen number yeah. one. <laughs> but I guess they all can kind of do it. It's part of their culture to ride uh, worms. Mm-hmm. So, because it's not like uh, the leader will do it, it's like they all do it. You, I think at age 12, you have mm-hmm. to ride one to be considered a full-fledged Fremen. So, yeah. yeah. It's pretty wild. Their, cult, no, their culture sense. is so fascinating. I can't wait to I see know. it more explored in part two of the movie. Definitely. And something I thought that was interesting for the kind sequence, mm-hmm. she got the hooks out. She's about to go and then gets run through from the back mm-hmm. by the Sardaukar. And I swear I saw it's water, water come out. It was water. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, A, I thought that was good to show... 
will reinforce that's what the still suits are containing. Mm -hmm. But B, something I noticed about the film was that the, there was that lack of blood. I know we talked about it. Probably yeah, for the that's reading, actually kind of like, one of the criticisms I could have of the movie is that some of the action pieces just felt like, uh, like I don't know, almost too fake in a sense. Like it, it like I, you okay. know, it's just. I, I hate to say that. I hate to say that because the, choreog yeah, the no, choreography no, no. was fantastic. But, like, mm -hmm. like, it really stood out to me was when, at the end of the movie, Paul versus Javis. When Paul has yeah. to, like, it just felt like, you know, there was, like, this, it was silent and they were, like, fighting. And then there was music playing. And then all of a sudden, it's just kind of over in a very non-climactic mm -hmm. finish um, because yeah. the movie didn't have a lot of blood and, like, Honestly, just the slightest tweak on like sound design with the fighting probably could have made it a little, felt a little bit more authentic. Like hearing the thug thuds, the stabs, and all that stuff because it felt a little almost too quiet, especially when they're not using mm -hmm. shields. Like the shields, they had the the effects, and you can tell. And like I don't know, that, that was my that's no, my that's, thoughts. Like on just dude, completely fair. Honestly, what they could have done with that shot is instead of because the way they had it. So those of you know for context. Essentially, um, Paul and Jessica get found by the Fremen. Uh, first, they're going to fight, but then they realize that they're actually, they could be on the same side. So Stilgar, the head of the Fremen, says that he's going to basically ensure their protection. But somebody who Paul disarmed, Javis, mm -hmm. uh, was upset about that. So he challenged him in their ancient ritual to one-on-one -on -one combat, fighting to the death. And so Paul has never killed a person, but he must fight this man. Mm -hmm. And so as they're fighting, Paul shows hesitation and he asks him if he wants to yield, but he refuses to. And so Paul gives him a couple chances and eventually you see it. Chalamet makes that they have to take the moment in which his face kind of changes and he internalizes what he has to do. But then as opposed to stabbing in the front, he sidesteps him and stabs him through the back. Yeah. And so I thought that they could have had it in such a way that he got him in the front so that he could have made eye contact. Mm -hmm. I think it would have been so much more impactful for him if he had made eye contact with them. And you don't have to show the hand going in. You can literally just show the upper part yeah. so that you can imply that he ran him through. And then so that Paul can see it. Because in the book, when that happened, Jessica said, how does it feel to be a killer? Because she didn't want Paul to come to revel in killing. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that could have been just an easy way to, sh and based on his reaction, to show that it's something Paul is hesitant to do but is willing to do at the same time. Mm -hmm. And still kind of show the more violent ending for yeah. Jeff's there. And also, in the book, it's not that he wanted to spare mercy to Jeff. It's that he was slow because he was used to fighting with shields. Oh, that's true. And so they changed oh, it a little true. bit like to say that, oh, Paul's never killed anyone before. Which is true. But in the book, like he was doing it more because... Um, he, he, he was used to fighting with shields where you have to go slower, which is hard to portray mm -hmm. in yes. the movie. I think a lot of people were confused. There was one reviewer I was watching about who never had read the books, loved the movie, but he was like, I just didn't understand the point of the shields. And I'm like, oh, it's mm -hmm. because, well, that's why it, the shields are the reason that they don't use guns, essentially. Yes. Because, and the re it's interesting when Paul's in the training mm -hmm. room with Gurney for the first time, you see him with the sword and he touches his hand like with the sharp yeah. part and it goes blue, blue, and then he turns it to the side and it goes red so he can get it through. Yeah. And you'll see as Momoa was fighting when the Harkonnens were taking them, he was going slow, turning the blade, yeah. and then he would be able to turn it and slice through. So that was... It's, it's really was subtle. You have to pay to a lot of yeah. attention to it, but like it's hard to 
without using like expository dialogue to really kind of like (laughs) realize what that is doing um absolutely so i understand they didn't want to take that direction in case people just like completely missed it but it also would have been a good opportunity to uh, highlight why like how shields worked but at the same time it was at the very end of part one and um the fremen don't use shields period so it uh just Mm -hmm. doesn't matter um so I understand shields attract worms. Yeah, too, shields attract, which they do say in the movie, because like kinds is like, yeah, shields are a death trap out in the desert. They attract the worms, the vibrations, all that stuff, which is interesting because mm-hmm. they have the shield wall and like. I was wondering that same thing. I was like, is it just so big that the worms are like I can't I can't mess with that? Uh, but, maybe it's uh, just not worm territory. Okay, that's mm-hmm. true. That's true. Could have been. I, I get Could have been. Probably have to go out to worm territory to uh, <laughs> deep in the desert. deep in the desert to some of the whims. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, so that I think is that the whole movie. Is there anything specific? That I'm we, trying to think. Like I know we went through a lot, and you're probably thinking, "Well, that doesn't sound like a long movie." It is long. It's a long mm-hmm. movie. There's a lot going on, and a lot of it is really just building up for part two. With that being said, without spoiling too much of what happens in part two, Palmer, what are you What's looking up? forward to the most in part two? I'm looking forward to the evolution of Paul. Mm-hmm. I think that, especially the way they portrayed him now, he's slowly starting to get a hold of his abilities, mm-hmm. but it's going to be such a a difference in the second part mm. or movie two. And I'm so fascinated to see how Chalamet plays that because it's almost going to be a different character. Yeah. Almost. And, uh, and I think Chalamet can pull it off because he's already showing oh, like the subtleties of kind of ch- changing. And, um, mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to kind of see how they, uh, you know, tackle some of the themes of part two. Cause I know in part one, actually it was a little bit more on the nose of like, yeah, maybe Paul's not the great guy kind of thing. When he talks to Lake Kynes and says, with the snap of my fingers, I can turn Arrakis into a lush planet. Like, I, you know, if I'm the emperor and all uh. that stuff. Like, you can tell that his motivations are rising to be bringing house, his house back. Revenge, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and he'll go through all of this. And he's like, my path is in the desert. I can see it the future and like um (laughs) the future but um yeah no i am super excited for his evolution um in uh the second part because that was my favorite like one of my favorite parts of the book i mean i mean that is the story of dune at the end of the day it's like the evolution of paul into what he becomes and then um it's also i'm really excited to see more of the fremen and the, the fremen okay. culture kind of like finally seeing that all like visualized like zendaya's mm-hmm. character is like a headliner in the movie but she's in it for the last 15 minutes i loved how part one though like teased audiences with events in part two mm-hmm. yes mm. yes i'm i'm fascinated to see i'm sure they're gonna use, reuse that mm-hmm. too, but i thought for a second as we were watching those that they had already recorded some of part yeah. two so I'm fascinated. Well, in a to way see they did. <laughs> in a way they did. Oh yeah, in a way they yeah. did. In a way they mm-hmm. did. So I'm fascinated to see that. I'm also curious to see if there was anything that they might have filmed for part one that didn't make it mm-hmm. that they used for part two. Oh yeah, I wonder. Yeah, I want to really like see like any behind the scenes. I want to see everything. Like, 
regarding like you know what his plan was his vision you know i, I just want to see it all it's not probably going to come out for a couple of years about like what was cut what wasn't and all that stuff but mm-hmm. um i will be excited for that and i'm just excited for like you know the big battles at in part two the you know, especially you know the ending it'll just be just amazing to see how it all works out and i wonder if people are going to crave to see dune's other books adapted yeah, because nobody's ever tried to take that on. I don't think, mm. at least in a movie, they know they've done like miniseries yeah. and whatnot for that. Mm, I, I, so yeah, it'll be interesting. I, I wonder if this could be the franchise starter of like a truly great science fiction. Or there's a lot of books though, and they can maybe do the first three because that's like mm-hmm. the that's like you know a trilogy of its own kind of story, um, and then. Uh, the last like three books are completely like new characters essentially so um it'll be interesting to see you know kind of what happens from here but i am beyond excited for part two and i hope it happens and i hope that we can see it within a year but i don't even think they've begun filming on it so it probably will be like two years before we see dune uh yeah i was gonna ask when you thought it was gonna come out the next one was gonna yeah do you think two years is too close or do you think it's gonna be longer than that i hope i i know that avengers from infinity war to endgame was only a couple of months but at the same time i think they were filming concurrently like back to back so mm-hmm. i they, know they, they had the green light for both those projects right so yeah they had announced it long before they actually so yeah with this they have to like get the green light hopefully warner brothers you know after like I want to actually let's look at how Dune's box office performance. I was going to do the same thing. Forty million this weekend. Mm. Pretty good. Actually, deadline says forty-one million domestic opening after a near ten million Sunday, highest for Denisville news. I have to say that's pretty good, and that's just box office. You're not even taking into account like the. Because the fact that it's split, right? Split stream, like mm-hmm. it's on HBO Max the same day, was so stupid. Uh, because you're you're you you Bruh. just did not you did not get the true true cinematic experience that Dune wanted to give you if you watched it on HBO Max. But uh, I can understand with the times that we're in. But um, forty-one million opening weekend—that's pretty good. It's already broken international box office records i've heard that the budget plus all the marketing and stuff costs like 300 million so uh you know like it's (laughs) we're almost even we're almost to break even yeah i mean it's already the most financially successful it's already it's 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 okay so it's made 47.4 million in the u.s okay Uh, oh wait sorry it made 40 million in the U.S. this weekend, but the film has grossed 180 million overseas, which makes it at 220 million globally. 220. Oh, so we're almost there. We're almost there, but I mean, you got to make up the profit, right? From the yeah. Movie. Like, I mean, I think it will be. I think you're going to see that. Definitely. It's going to continue to be a success. I think a lot of people are going to go see it. There's a lot of hype around the movie, um, and it's just kind of the movie to go see right now, and, uh, and and also a reason to get back to the theaters if you haven't gone in a while is to go see Dune. So, um, and I really do hope uh, that it does Dune Part Two because I you know I mean if they made a sequel to Blade Runner, 
Mm-hmm. You got to think they can make a sequel to freaking Dune, right? Oh, especially because they're still part of one story, A. But B, you know, God willing, the pandemic is way over in two mm-hmm. years. People will be going to theaters yeah. regularly again. So if they invest in it now, I mean, they'll see it. Mm-hmm. And also, it's also like money you're releasing a movie in a, you know, a, 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 and still kind of COVID. So you got to take that with a little grain of salt. Maybe it could have been yep. a huge blockbuster movie. And we'll see. I don't consider $41 million opening a flop. I don't. At I don't all. That At all. I think that's a pretty good opening weekend. And I hope that um, more people go and see it next weekend, the weekend after that. You know, I will buy five tickets. You know, I will go. I know my five tickets won't add up to much, but I will see it again in theaters if I have to. Yeah. Um, just because I want to see a part two. I want to see a part two. It needs to be done. has to be done. Must be done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Must. <laughs> no, agreed. I, I'm likely going to go see it again in theaters. Yeah, so. I, I want to see it again in IMAX. I'd be, I'd be so down. Uh, I, just do, I just do. It was so good. It was so good. Um, I know. I know. You're probably all listening to us being like, oh, wow. They're, oh, whoops. Um, gushing about science fiction, all that stuff. Or, or, or Dune, <laughs> rather. But, like, I love science fiction. Where would you rank Definitely. it as in your repertoire for dune at the end of the day and like your would you put it up there palmer as one of the better oh. science fiction movies dude absolutely specifically thinking about the scale that it has to cover as well as all the different um subplots and storylines and the philosophy i think that was such a successful a uh, attempt at it so i consider that a huge plus and then just overall great cast great performances um just over oh, dude i mean yeah it's up there i'm honestly okay i can't say that i can't i was gonna say like it's better than star wars <laughs> whoa um but as i a, think it's better than star wars. i know i know i, I know. think it's better as than a, star wars i think it is as a okay okay perfect see okay honestly just especially because it's a standalone right now as a standalone film knowing where it's gonna mm-hmm. go i'm fully excited for part two but i fully appreciate part one yeah so. yeah that's good Dude. I could watch yeah. it all day if I, if I want because it's on HBO Max and I can just watch it as many times as <laughs> I want. So it's, it's such a good movie. Yeah. Uh, but uh, is there anything else you want to add, Palmer? Dude. <sighs> I, I do, but maybe it's better to wait till part two comes out because I don't want to spoil anything. Yeah. So with that, I will say, please, if you haven't seen this film, hopefully you have because you're listening to this right now, but if you haven't go check it out it's awesome um and i'm so hoping it comes out in less than two years but we'll see yeah i I know i'm I'm praying that you know like yeah two years like december or like october 2023 god that sounds so long um (laughs) to come out like i hope warner brothers uh green lights the project and they can just get right back into it you know like let's go let's go let's go we're gonna go start filming in like freaking january or something and just work on it like yeah please please yeah. please please <laughs> but yeah Help us. i'm excited i hope they green light the project um go see it if you haven't or please see it in theaters and uh yes anyways so Anyways, all that has been our show. Thanks so much for listening. I'm your host, Charlie Budd. Joining with me, as always, is the wonderful Jordan Palmer. We are the What You Got Podcast. You can listen to our episodes every single Monday evenings. Uh, Be sure to follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. And make sure to follow us on social media. 
Palmer, why don't you hit him one more time with the all right, one more time. You can follow us on Instagram at What You Got Podcast, which is spelled W H A T C H A, or on Twitter at What You Got Cast, which is spelled the same way. And please let us know uh, what you thought about the movie if you've seen it. And uh, that's been our show, and we'll see you guys next week. <laughs>